author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. Welcome to I Protest with Donald Jeffries. As the man says, I'm coming to you from just outside the Swamp and Festival of Washington, D.C., as I do every Friday at this time, 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel until they decide to strike me again. Uh, we're also on rockfin.com live. We're on freeworld.fm as well. So uh, join us in the chat, whatever. I monitor the YouTube mostly because I can put the comments on the screen. So hope to see a bunch of you in here. We have a very special guest. Uh, Nick Mancuso should be a name known to um, moviegoers everywhere. Uh, just a you know a wonderful actor that uh, has been around for uh, quite a while. Uh, if you look at his IMDb string string credits, they're very impressive. He's probably, I guess, most people probably know him for starring as the star of the uh, '80s uh, cult te- television series uh, Stingray. Uh, which I think was only on for a couple seasons, but most people seem to remember that. He's been on lots of other stuff. So, and he's a Renaissance man. He's an artist. Uh, he's well-read. He likes my work. So, you know, he must be brilliant, right? So <laughs> Nick Mancuso, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you again. Donald, it is a great pleasure to be here. As you can see, I'm in the dark. I've spent a lifetime in front of the camera and right. I'm tired of it. So you're just right. going to get a, a black picture. I understand. Well, look, and, looking and, up, there's lots of sexy pictures of Nick. Nick was Nick was a a studly young guy back in the day. I think you said your first your first film, weren't you the romantic lead opposite? No, no, no. Like my very well, first film, my very first film, Don, was actually one of the very first I ever did was a film called Black Christmas, which yeah. is a, which which is a huge cult hit. I you seen that. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrea Martin yeah, okay. from SCTV was well. There, yeah. Well, I was the voice of Billy. Yeah. It's me, Billy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it was part, and it was the weirdest thing because it's probably one of the most successful films I ever did. I, back in 71, I was just a kid doing theater in Toronto, under what we referred to in those days as underground theater, mm-hmm. because we were a bunch of kids right out of college, some of us, and some from the theater schools and so forth. It just kind of, collected on the streets of Toronto back in the 60s when the big sort of spiritual and uh, revolution was occurring and and we were all going to throw off our chains and 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 open up to this brand new world it was the dawning of the age of aquarius <laughs> hair was in the air we were all protesting the war in vietnam and growing our hair long and you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and yeah. Jim Morrison and all that, you know, wonderful, hopeful, uh, balderdash of extraordinary explosions into the universe was, uh, was going around. And, uh, and I was doing uh, this theater, this kind of uh, revolutionary theater. We were doing street theater. We were doing... Uh, uh, you know, audience participation theater. We were doing all kinds of stuff. and just had kind of collected uh, together. And at that time, uh, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the, uh, Trudeau, not the father, 
I mean, not the son, but the right. father who, who I knew, who was an extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinary man, um, uh, who, you know, I don't want to say anything disparaging, uh, but he was a brilliant guy. And, and he set up the programs, not unlike what FDR did in the United States with the works programs mm -hmm. for the arts. And that's what created the theater movement in Canada which then resulted in the film movement and then resulted in the American film movement moving up to Canada because of the price. Everything moved to Toronto and Vancouver in the mid-80s. But uh, at that particular point in time, it was just a bunch of kids who were getting these uh, broken-down old warehouses and putting in theaters, or we would do it in church basements and so forth. And during that period of time, I remember that summer, uh, I had, of course, like all, uh, you know, fledgling wannabe artists, flat broke, of course, and living on uh, tomatoes that were growing in the backyard. And uh, I got a job to do a film called Black Christmas. And, and I met uh, Bob Clark, the director, a wonderful man, a wonderful director and a wonderful man. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, okay, here, I, I want you to come up with a voice of some kind. I, I'm, I sit in a chair over there with your back to me and I'm just going to listen. So I started making all these weird sounds and growls and this and that and so forth. He said, okay, great, great. You got the part. And, uh, and, uh, so I began to do this crazy psychopathic killer called Billy, uh, who is calling up, uh, these, uh, the sorority house and, and, and terrorizing the girls. And of course in the cast was Margot Kidder, yes. a wonderful actress, oh, Andrea, Andrea Martin and, yeah. From uh, SCTV, the great yes. comedy show, and, the, yeah, and so forth. Uh, Olivia and, Hussey, uh, wasn't Olivia Hussey in it? Olivia Hussey, of course, starred in it with Keira DeLay. Uh, Keira yeah. DeLay had done uh, Kubrick's, you know, uh, you know, 2001. And, yeah. um, you know, so, and uh, of course, I know, you know, so I just, so we just, I just stood on my head and, and made this bizarre kind of bunch of sounds. And the film came and kind of people sort of, you know, just kind of, oh, yeah, well, fine, fine, a little horror movie along with this is beginning, the beginning of the slasher movies. Friday the 13th hadn't come out yet. These these horror movies that have been in existence now leading all the way to the Zombieville universe that we now live in, you know, had not yet existed. So it was really the very first. And strangely enough, that film, had such a powerful impact because there's a huge community of people around the world that that love that film, and it plays every Christmas. Which is yeah. like, you know, now doesn't that tell you something about the nature of our times? Yeah. That it play, <laughs> that 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 you know, in my time, it was Alistair Sim in A Christmas Carol, yeah, a beautiful yeah. film, a beautiful film, and of course it was. Jimmy Stewart, and it's a wonderful life. Yes, and yes. what a great film that was. And now it's Black Christmas about a psychopathic <laughs> killer who kills all girls and they all scream and die. And yeah. everybody loves it. You know, it says was, something was it, was about that, our was, age. Was that Bob Clark, the same one who did Christmas Story? Yes, exactly. Bob thought. Clark did. Yeah. Unfortunately, he died young in an accident. Yes, with his son, I think, or something. With what his was son, that? yeah, yeah. I think I but mentioned that in a barn family. Very strange. He was, he was a Texan, actually. You know, he somehow ended up in Canada, in Toronto at that time. A bunch of Americans had come up during that period because the war in Vietnam actually had a lot of people, a lot of draft dodgers, 
came up to Toronto. And in fact, in many ways, the Canadian theater movement was actually uh, triggered by a lot of these uh, draft dodgers. The American draft dodgers came up. They were highly creative, very principled people that refused to fight an immoral war, which it was, of course. It was the first of the many immoral wars that have been unfortunately, uh, you know, who knew back in the 60s that, you know, that uh, the stuff that we thought was science fiction would in fact become real. And it is right. real. People, people that were not born in that generation, of course, have no idea. The 60s is like, now I think about the 60s as someone would uh, a lot in the last century when people would say, you know, in 1862, <laughs> I was uh, wending my way through the Oregon Trail. Yeah, what, was I, it, what, you know. what was the hippie? One of the hippies uh, later said something like, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there or something. What was that? that yeah, yeah. If you, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. And, of yeah. course, we did all that stuff. You know, we did all, all, all that crazy but you know that crazy um, uh, opening up of the of consciousness, you might say, because it was a kind of an experimental time uh, in in human existence. That that led to really the a kind of of opening in 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 the approach to life itself, because it became ultimately a spiritual movement that resulted in in a tremendous amount of change in society in America and consequently in the world. Uh, if you think about the fall of communism, and which at that time seemed like an, an absolute impossibility, talking about the 50s and 60s. Sure. You know, the Cold War, of course, you know, I was, you know, in my generation, we all had to do, um, you know, uh, dr drills. To, tuck and cover, you know, yeah, to, sure. Tuck and cover because <laughs> the atom bomb was going to go off. And it could have, it could have, had it not been for Kennedy. Had it not been for his negotiations with right. Khrushchev, yeah. we might have actually gone to nuclear war. And he's at the only that one that wanted it. He's the only one. They all, all the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He and he and yes. alone. They oh, all. Yes. Everyone yeah. 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 So, let's kill. Let's you know get the, get them commies. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Here. Uh oh, so oh here comes the nuclear. War. You know. Come on. <laughs> Wake up, kids. And now, so, of course, that's what's it's starting all over again. People are seriously yeah. talking about tactical nuclear weapons are yeah. you joking and the enemy is the same we're back to russia again oh it's, I mean, it's it, always it, been <laughs> but you know what don it's been it's always been the same enemy if you really look at history and you you know i i'm i'm uh, you know not only of that generation but i was uh, i guess i had a very unusual background because i was born in a small town in the south of italy uh, yes. in the mountains of calabria and um, the language I spoke, which is the solo Calabrian, the language of my grandmother, that had been the language for thousands of years, it's almost gone. It's almost disappeared. And uh, the, the world I grew up in was biblical in nature. And uh, for real, we didn't have electricity. It was, uh, you know, there were donkeys and goats and chickens and, and pigs and and, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, one person uh, had a car somewhere, you know, a hundred miles away. Uh, there, there was an electric tram. There was a tram that did go from my mountain town to the, uh, to the coastline. And, uh, and in those days, of course, when we migrated, I migrated <coughs> in 1953, it was like going to the moon. It was like 
when we left my small town, I remember I was so, so, uh, of course, as a child, looking forward to what this world was, what America was all about. I'd been told, you know, by the old women that apparently in America that the sky was low. And, uh, mm. and so people had to bend down, you see, because <laughs> the sky was low. And oh. so I imagined all these, and there was a lot of chimneys. So I imagined all these chimney stacks with the smoke going yeah. sideways, you know, and people walking <laughs> yeah. around and thought to myself, oh my God, I don't want to go there. This is terrible. What yeah. am I going to do? There's going to be no, there's going to be nothing there. So, you know, I, I come or came from that land of color and, and tremendous uh, life force you know i mean it was it was greek it was saracen it was viking it was all the well you must have some Europe. great food though right i mean italian oh the best the absolutely <laughs> the best absolutely i had all that so i was worried about that so i thought what i would do is i would uh, bring watermelon seeds and hide them in my pocket so i could plant them once i came to america so you know so having had that kind of background and then ending up in canada and then you know learning english from bugs bunny cartoons <laughs> and um, and then suddenly becoming inculcated into a culture that I hated, despised, and and becoming you know that kind of transforming myself from one very different kind of culture to another, yeah. I think is what finally led me to becoming an, uh, becoming an actor because my interest really was not acting. My interest was science, uh, physics, electronics, you know, that kind of stuff. I was into Nikola Tesla when I was 12 years oh, old. I was into wow. Albert, Albert Einstein. Yeah. I, well, I actually built a Tesla coil with a friend of mine when I was 12, and I was into, you know, Albert Einstein when I was 10. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, you, know, I, and uh, you know, I joined and I started the Ayn Rand Society when I was 16. <laughs> so I was, you know, and reading Count Alfred Korzybski when I was 17. So I had a very unusual mind, certainly not the kind of mind that should go into showbiz by yeah. any threat. I'll say, when, when, when you went to showbiz, I mean, did you, I mean. It was a purely neurotic impulse. I was but, an incredibly unhappy child. Uh, you know, uh, I came from, my, my background was very difficult. My, my mother was, was not well, not well. And, and my father was a man of honor, a very solid, very powerful, very disciplined, uh, came from a society and came from a world, you know, coming, coming right back to the, the fascists of, 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 of Italy. Mm -hmm. And that period of time that produce, produced uh, men like that and produced men that were men of iron and discipline and the what, whole what, thing. Uh, is that. How, what did he think of Mussolini? Well, of course, he absolutely admired him. Are you kidding? Yeah, Him and my brother and his brothers. Well, so did so did uncle. Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound, one of our most Ezra Pound, poets. of course he, of course he did. He served Ezra ten Pound. years in a mental institution for supporting him later. Well, it, it was either that or be shot for treason. You yes, know, that's yeah, so yeah. he feigned, in feigned insanity, and during that period of time, uh, uh, was able to get a book written by one of his students. I think his name was Mullins. Who Eustace wrote Mullins, yeah, the father Eustace of the Federal Mullins, Reserve. Yes, yeah. Who wrote, wrote the entire story of the Federal Reserve and what really happened to yeah. America in yeah. 1933, in 1913, Christmas yes. Eve, yeah. you know, when, uh, when the Federal Reserve was created, which is neither federal nor a reserve. Mm -hmm. And it's got nothing to do with, uh, <laughs> it's got nothing that is good in it. <laughs> 
for the American people or anybody else. It's about profit. And why shouldn't it be? You know, of course, this world is only about well, profit, right? And it's there's the trillionaires and then there's the rest of us worms, right? Exactly. Well, you, when you went no. to, when you go into Hollywood, here you are a student of Tesla. And, well, I was an idiot. I was a complete fool. I mean, I, I was such a jerk. I, I you know, I, I, I ended up, uh, you know, doing the underground theater for years and years, you know. And of course, I was doing all the, 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 the Beckett and Anui and, and uh, you know, all the and UNESCO and, and uh, all that stuff, you know, that wonderful broth of creativity mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, that really was part of just part of the world, just extraordinary stuff. Shakespeare, of course, was was the guy that really triggered me. I mean, triggered me. I became an actor because, unfortunately, I was put in Hamlet when I was 16, and I ended up uh, being forced to, to play to by the theater teacher, by the drama prof, uh, English teacher, to join the drama club. And I didn't even know what drama was because I used to have a very powerful memory. And he, you know, so he put me in, and I'm going, I don't know what this is. And uh, so he made me Laertes, and a friend of mine played Hamlet, and a wonderful actor who unfortunately has passed on. And, uh, and then I heard Sir John Gilgud's recording of Hamlet, which blew me away. And then because I was into electronics, I took a little record player. In those days, there were no tapes or anything. You know, there was, but barely. And I put it on repeat, and I hooked up a little earphone, and I slept with Sir John Gilgud's Hamlet playing in my ears. Who's there, Bernardo? Say he. It is a cold and bitter night, and I'm sick at heart. And and there's Gilgut going, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I? Is it not monstrous that this play I hear and all that? And I thought that's what acting was. So for years, I would, you know, whenever I did a stage play, I'd go like this because you know I thought that's what actors did. And um, so a very unusual and bizarre. And then I memorized uh, the entire play, almost, and carried it in my pocket for years. And I became obsessed with him. And that obsession is really why I started acting. And why did I do that? Because I was a scared, skinny, frightened, terrified immigrant kid uh, living in a very, very difficult family uh, situation, my mother not being well mentally and 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 my father being that and in a society that completely i had nothing uh, to connect to i used to get chased and beaten up by the kids or they try to beat me up and uh, you know i was a good christian boy so you know i was told i wasn't supposed to fight so i'd just stand there and the kids would jump on me and all that mm -hmm. until finally one day i went you know what screw you boom and i hit <laughs> one of the kids knocked him across the room the other kids went oh, oh and they stayed away from me yeah. But unfortunately, that is absolutely the wrong kind of attitude. My mother was right, because that kind of, you know, insanity, you know, that kind of unfortunate um, aggressiveness, which is so much part of the ethos of the North American life. Yeah, yeah. It is also in the ethos of Europe, you know. I'm in Europe. Europe, you know, the streets of Paris, you know, here where I am. The, you know, uh, were flowing with blood in the 12th century in the St. Bartholomew massacres. The Nazis were here only eight, eight, 80 years ago, so dragging the Jews out and shooting partisans against the walls. You can still see the bullet holes uh, in many of the buildings that were left there on purpose. 
Um, so there's a very different kind of reality. Of course, France is the basis of America because Les Droits des Hommes, the rights of man, were founded here. Jefferson was here. The French helped uh, with the creation of the American Revolution and, you know, and the creation of America itself. Um, but you see, it's just mankind, isn't it? I mean, it really is the issue of just, it's what Conrad Lawrence, the um, writer, wrote in a book called, you know, I think it was Janus, where he argued that there was something essentially aggressive within the condition of the human being. And his argument was this. He said that the single most important day in the history of mankind was the day America dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said from that point on, the clock to extinction uh, had been turned on. Why? Because he said, and he's right, he said, in the history of the world, no weapon has ever been created that's only been used once. <laughs> so we are in rather, shall we say, uh, difficult times, yeah. <laughs> or as, as the Chinese would say, interesting times. They're interesting. And, uh, <laughs> they're, I'm not bored. Are you, Don? No. Maybe the people will say, you know. If this would be a science fiction movie, we didn't have to live in it. Uh, it would be incredible. But you're you're coming to us from Paris. Well, that's I... that's okay, Donald. We're going back home. We're going back to Mars. Okay, Mars okay. is waiting for us. It's there. You yeah. know, we left it. We left it. What two hundred million years ago when it exploded, <laughs> and we moved here. You know, to get away. And now we're going back. We're just going home. And you know, we're going to set it all up. And, and of course, that is very possible. You know that Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, is doing something that, in fact, could work for real. And he is right about interplanetary, uh, you know, travel and that, in fact, we have to. It is in the nature of consciousness and the nature of beingness. Of course, this universe is filled, you know, of course it is. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. And probably they are here with us and amongst us. You know, I'm a follower of Dr. Stephen Greer, who I think is, a, is an extraordinary man and who's done some extraordinary work and probably is standing on what is the single most important thing in our time, which is that once we do establish the reality of contact with uh, the various beings that do exist, and we have access to the technology, which is real, which is the technology that Nikola Tesla had come up with in 1899, 1901, 1903, zero-point energy. He built the very first electric car uh, in 1906, and it didn't run with a huge battery. The size, what, what made it work was something the size of a, of a cell phone because it wasn't a battery. It operated on zero-point energy and apparently even gave a demonstration of one of these machines to Congress and showed them, look, we can do this. And they all went, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, well, J.P. Morgan just told us the Standard Oil is going to be making all this moolah for us. <laughs> and uh, they didn't give a damn, you know. And people, see, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, if people can't see it or hear it or know it and understand it, then, you know, it's like playing a radio station on frequency, you know, on a beautiful frequency that nobody can hear. If they can't hear it, then, you know, if they, get, they don't get it, you know, how are you going to say, well, who's Nikola Tesla? Well, he did build Niagara Falls, kids. He's the guy <laughs> that came up with AC, you know, alternating yes. current. He yes. lit Buffalo, New York, Toronto, 
and lit up the world. And he did come up with, you know, the x-rays and the neon, the first electromagnetic signals. And yes, the radio before Marconi, only his could communicate worldwide. You know, it's like, but you tell people like this and they look at you like you're crazy. And Well, and you I think go, Tesla oh, has more... Fine. Tesla has more people, I think, interested in him now than because uh, now, I mean, yes, we, we know now, that yes. he's, yeah. uh, he he had those files that were very interesting, and he said he developed free energy for all. And then, uh, yes, John Trump, Donald Trump's uncle, was sent by the government for some reason. Why? He well, was what happened away. was <laughs> what, what happened was this: after he did the Wardenclyffe experiments, right, which is mm -hmm. where he was really going to absolutely pull in the energy of the, of the electromagnetic field of the planet Earth, which is huge. And that's what it was about. And then it was also be able not only transmit, but receive. And he it was in Boulder, Colorado. And he actually, uh, it was the, the mad scientist scene, you know, electricity everywhere. And, you know, and he actually blew out the city, blew out the, uh, the electric grid. Um, he then came back uh, and he set up the, the Wardenclyffe experiments. And I think it was in Jersey. And, by this point, uh, you know, Tesla had been the creator of Westinghouse because Westinghouse yeah. was the uh, businessman that backed him. That, you know, when, when, yes. when uh, Tesla um, uh, was working for Edison and, uh, and Edison, you know, and he was solving all of these problems for, for Edison and all that. And Edison at one particular point said to him, <laughs> you're a pretty smart kid, aren't you? All right. Here, here's a problem. I got something for you. You go down there, and if you can fix that, he had a ship that was running on direct current, and it had blown up because it, with DC things like burn up. You got to have you got to have wires that are you know as thick as your arm to transmit any amount of energy, and uh, so they blow up and burn up, and you know all that. So he goes there and he fixes it, and he says, "If you can fix that, I'll give you fifty grand, fifty thousand dollars." So Tesla does. He works on it for a year, solves the problem, and then he goes to Edison and says, uh, uh, well, Mr. Edison, you know, I did it for you, and uh, can I have my money, please? And, and Edison goes, give me your money? What are you talking about? That was just a joke. Don't you understand American humor? <laughs> and screws, and Tesla goes, and Tesla says, I'm very sorry, Mr. Edison, but I must leave. I will quit. And he quits. Mm -hmm. And he works as a ditch digger in New York City. And uh, while he's doing that, this his his you know ideas had been spreading around. There was this crazy you know Serbian genius uh, by the name of Nikola Tesla. Uh, this guy Westinghouse who was smart enough to realize this guy was onto something. Looks him up, finds him, and says, "Look, I'll back you." And so he backs Tesla, and they start doing alternating current stuff, right? And and the Chicago exhibition of uh, whatever it was, 18, uh, I can't remember what it was, 1890-something, was lit up by Nikola Tesla. There it is, alternating current. And then this war starts between Edison uh, and Tesla as to who is going to get the control of the electric uh, so forth. And Edison, of course, being a showman, would go on stage with elephants and electrocute them. Yes. <laughs> to point out to the world how dangerous alternating current was. Well, it didn't work because they managed to actually build Niagara Falls and alternating current. And that's why we have the world we have, thanks to Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Now, 
so, but Tesla took all of his money. He had a percentage of Westinghouse. He would have made a fortune. Westinghouse got himself into trouble. And, uh, you know, so he said to Tesla, listen, I can't afford to, can you, can you give me a break and let me have it? And Tesla let him have the money. So he just, and he kept spending all the money he had made from Westinghouse on these new inventions, on this extraordinary stuff. And Westinghouse got bought up by J.P. Morgan, the one and only. And J.P. Morgan, of course, was all about oil and the railroads and all that stuff and and money 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 there you go again <laughs> and um you know so he um he uh, he he backs tesla and his experiments the warden cliff and and so forth and trying to figure out what this crazy guy was doing and when he sat with tesla and tesla explained to him that what he was doing was creating an infinite source of energy for mankind where you could collect energy anywhere on the planet, anywhere. And, and you could just li literally put this thing down and there would be just constant energy. And Morgan said to him, well, how am I going to charge him? Money. <laughs> and, uh, and Tesla said, you're not, sir, Mr. Morgan. This is for mankind. And Morgan went, Mankind. Oh, hey! All right, there, buddy, buddy boy. And and uh, the next thing you know, somebody had burnt down Nikola Tesla's laboratory. And the next thing you know, all of his money disappeared. And the next thing you know, he was reduced to a pauper, living in a hotel in I think the um, the uh, New Yorker. Yeah. Um. And um. Uh, and 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 his only friends were pigeons. Uh, and uh, and he continued doing his research until he died. Now, here's the thing. He was, what, 80-something? Yes. Here's the thing. He actually designed a machine, and I know this because I actually, uh, actually was on a model of this machine through a series of very strange circumstances by a man who had actually seen the original machine uh, by Tesla when an old man in New Jersey when he was a kid, showed him this machine. And it was Tesla's machine. It was an electrostatic machine. And you could go on it, and basically what it would do is it would change the frequency of your body because everything is frequency in the universe. Everything is frequency. That's what Tesla realized. Everything is frequency. And he managed to create a machine that actually could um, help the body uh, heal itself and restore itself the average cell uh is about uh, 22 microvolts of energy when you get sick the battery the voltage cell the voltage goes down 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 and at around 16 microvolts you get cancer if you can increase the energy of the body because it's all about energy and frequency you can actually restore yourself to health to health and not only that and i've used these machines because i restored myself from near death a number of years ago and uh, this particular machine um, was actually, believe it or not, one of the very first people to actually stand on it was one of Nikola Tesla's closest friends, Mark Twain. And, uh, and Mark Twain actually stood on it. And Mark Twain had suffered from very severe, many, many, many severe problems, one of which was depression. 
and he felt so much better. You know, it's, so this stuff is all real. It's not science fiction, kids. It's absolutely real. But the problem is that we're being denied access sure. to this information. Now, what the hell has this got to do with acting? I haven't a clue. How did I become Stingray? I haven't a clue. You know, yeah. I've done almost, what, almost 200 films, 220 films. Yeah. None of them, with the exception of the Under Siege movies with Steven Seagal, and uh, the films I did with Brandon Lee, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the martial arts movies, uh, none of them made a cent, man, not a cent. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, they did, I did television, of course, which, you know, is, is sponsored. But Weren't you pretty well paid ever. for uh, Stingray as the star of that show? Was I? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I went, I made a, a tremendous amount of money before it was all stolen by uh, my business manager. But we won't talk about that today, yeah. shall we? <laughs> we won't discuss that. No, we won't discuss the Hollywood swampland or anything else, or what you know, Randy Quaid referred to as the uh, star whackers. Yeah. Uh, and, I like uh, it. You did you did you ever meet Randy Quaid? Have you ever had a chance to talk? To him? I did. I did meet Randy Quaid. Uh, I met him for a short period of time. He did a he did a film with a friend of mine, and uh, so I got to get a little bit of you know he's a wonderful guy. You know, a very talented actor, of course. And <laughs> he as you know, me. he well, he woke up one morning and you know the house was gone, and the business yeah. manager and his lawyer had basically stolen. Well, guess what, kids. Yeah. It ain't. And then he said, Hey, guess what? I'm not the only one. There's lots of actors have gone through this. Well, I can attest to that because I went through it. And yeah. he said, they call them star whackers because he said they were killing some of them and stuff like that. And, uh, Oh, you know, I didn't get killed exactly, but I came close to getting killed because the shock was so intense. I started going through extraordinary health crisis, but I have restored myself since then. And I'm back. I'm still around and I'll be sticking around a little bit longer on planet earth <laughs> well you're with, in uh, you're in uh, paris now that's a uh we don't get yeah, too many I guests paris. from paris so talk about um the and i think we talked about this before but i i call uh america 2.0 the world's wealthiest banana republic i think we're all in absolutely third world uh one of the i think you told me before well no question about it no, yeah. no no question about it of course but you see what i realize of course is that the hunger games is real and uh and that in fact what Fritz Lang did in the film Metropolis in 1927 as the Nazis were coming to power, where he described us a society of super, super rich and everybody else are slaves that are yeah. controlled by a, a robot. A gigantic robot is, in yeah. fact, reality. That's exactly what's going on with formation of AI and so forth and hybrid realities and all that stuff. There's, there, is going, there is already a super class of trillionaires and billionaires, you know, more money is now in the hands and the pockets of the fewest number of people on planet Earth, yes. and the separation uh, between rich and poor has never been greater. Our politicians, for the the you know the largest part, are basically jokers, clowns, marionettes, puppets, you know, and so forth. They're not in charge. They're not in charge at all. The people that are in charge are 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 in fact and always have been are the ones who control the money. It's all about the money, and as the Baron Rothschild said in 1796, give me control of a nation's currency and I care not a whit which crown sits on which throne. Because it's when, always been about that. You well, know? you you know all this stuff in my audiences. Uh, they, well, you know, they're always familiar with this because this is a conspiracy-friendly audience. What was it like in Hollywood? At what point did, did, were you aware of all this stuff? 
Were, were you talking about this stuff? Were you talking about the Rothschilds? No, like no, 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 or? no. No, listen, I was totally, you know, I was completely obsessed with it. With, you know, just, uh, you know, my career and acting and <laughs> my marriages and stuff like that. But I continuously studied and read. You know, I got into, uh, uh, when I was in the 60s, I was a full-blown drug addict, alcoholic, and I went through all that. And at the age of 33, it was lifted. I, I had the good, great fortune of being, um, you know, having survived a horrible, horrible uh, disease. I still have it, uh, you know, and, and I, 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 I work spiritual programs to keep myself on the straight and narrow of existence because, uh, you know, addiction is probably, and, and particularly in drugs or alcohol, of course, is the very, in my mind, the very, uh, uh, you might say, the, the, the great darkness or the great virus that has entered consciousness in America and has taken it down. Uh, the reason all this stuff has gone in my in my mind, and you don't do it through bro prohibition, and you don't do it with war on drugs because you can't make war on yourself. It doesn't work that way. You have to find a spiritual path, and uh, and until you find that spiritual path, you know you you will be either killed by it, dragged down by it, or destroyed. You cannot grow. You cannot manifest. Nick, can, can you see this? Can you see the screen? I put a I put a comment up there about. Uh, can you see that? I have, put on my, I have to put on oh, my. I have to put on. Oh, I just I'll read it to you. It, it just no, no. My sister, yeah. And my my sister produced it with at least one movie with Nick. She is a producer with Pierre David and has been with him since 1991. Neil Zonich is his name and was a producer on Capture. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> How about that, that is so funny. Well, Pierre David, who who's a great guy, actually <laughs> said to me on the phone the great line when I refused to do the lines at the end of the show. They, they were terrible. I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it. We're going to rewrite this. It's terrible. And, and, and Pierre was yelling at me and screaming and saying, you have to do it. You, and if you don't do it, I'm going to make sure that you never get hired in Hollywood again. <laughs> and it was, like, it was like the scene with Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know, uh -huh. I know, I know, nobody will work you. Dude. Let me tell you something. Nobody will work you. You know, I mean, yeah, I was a tomato. You know, tomatoes <laughs> don't sit down. That's incredible. Yeah, captured. Yeah, small yeah. world. Yeah. yeah, a lovely writer. Uh, what was his name? I can't remember now. He's a wonderful writer, director, actually. Marvelous, marvelous individual. Uh, interesting film, yeah, interesting film, and, and among many of the ones that I did during that period of time, because basically, you know, when it all turned, you know, uh, because, you know, you, you, you know, I started making a lot of these films, so, well, why did you do this film, do that film? Well, because I had to put food on the table, that's why. <laughs> and um, what else? It's like, why did you do that part? Well, that's what was offered, man, you know, it's like... Mm -hmm. You know, and how, well, how, how you know how come you didn't work with Marty Scorsese because he already had Robert De Niro? What are you talking about? What am I gonna? <laughs> you know, it's like, what am I gonna play? You know, it's not to say that I was. You know, my, I, I wrote a biography which I have to still finish and get published called "Never Play the Indian." Yeah, uh, and and the first and the first line of that book is it says in Hollywood there are cowboys and Indians. Never play the Indian. And uh, and it's true. Hollywood basically is cowboys and Indians, you know, and um, there's white hats and black hats. And 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 if you look at the history of Hollywood and so forth, because, uh, you know, it, it's like you, you you cannot the you know, the the the, the, the there is a n not a racist 
exactly agenda in the sense of, of racism, but the reality is that it's always been, you know, uh, the Hollywood experience is basically about one thing and one thing only, which is a good thing to say, a very good thing to say. There is hope. There is hope. You know, you can do it. You can do it. That is one of the most wonderful messages that's ever been put out, other than the messages of, 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 of Christ and the Bible, that there is hope. There is hope. But the problem is, is that if you look at the real history of Hollywood in terms of the manifestation of the actual films and so forth, you know, um, I'm not saying that because of the fact that I, you know, if you're Italian, I'm Italian. My name is Mancuso, you know. And um, I didn't play the boxer. I didn't play Rocky. You know, I'm sorry. No, I didn't do that. You never part. played a monster. You, you, were in you didn't get to play and a good I, You know, and I didn't do You're looking at me. You're looking at me. Uh, you know, <laughs> nobody else here. You know, and all that. You know, there was a discussion between a friend of mine, R.H. Thompson, and uh, Chris Plummer, Christopher Plummer, the great actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canadian actor who, of course, disguised himself as an Englishman, as all great Canadians have in the past. Uh, and that is true, by the way. Uh, you put on the British accent, you know. When I was a young actor, Canada, I had to, I, I, one year, one particular time, I pretended I was British for about a whole year. And so I, I spoke with an English in order to get hired. Because Canada still, you know, is, it's, you know, that it was, when I grew up, there was the dominion of Canada. And so at my time, it was like, I remember a director saying to me uh, in Canada, <laughs> as I was doing, I was running a small theater in Halifax called Pure One Theater with a friend of mine. We were doing, quote, original Canadian plays. And, uh, and at that time, there was no such thing as a Canadian play. And, uh, and uh, I ended up uh, at the regional theater and the the regional theater did nothing but sort of British kind of things. You know, everything was kind of British and British actors were always on stage, you know, and there was all that kind of, aren't you clever, dear boy, and all that. Mm -hmm. And I remember this director saying to me, actually saying this to me, saying, oh, Nick, you're like a diamond in the rough. You could never do Shaw. And I thought, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I could never do Shaw. I see. It's because what? Because I'm, uh, you know. Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a WAPA, DP, is, is that what it is? Uh, oh, I'm supposed to play mafia guys. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, the, the nature of acting is that the individual, the human being, manifests and portrays the human condition. The human condition, period. Of any type, anywhere, anyhow. That's the whole idea. But that's not what happens in reality. Because people want to see, of course, the people that they know that they can recognize, that they, you know, feel comfortable with. So like what Paley said uh, about the founding, uh, the founder of CBS. What was that his name? Was it, was it Paley? I can't William, remember. Oh, yeah, Bill William Paley. William Paley, who said CBS. He said, I only want to have people on my network that I would allow into my home. Okay. So, so, so anyway, that's this whole separate issue. But, but in terms of casting and playing parts and all that, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the the actor, the actor manifests the human condition, and that's the way I was raised. So, so I was always aiming in that particular direction, which led me down some pretty uh, sort of stupid roads because I would turn down films that would would be commercial successes for unknown and obscure pictures, like the time Sam Peckinpah offered me 
you know, one of the great, one of the great Hollywood directors offered me Osterman Weekend, which was unfortunately his last movie. But I turned him down to do an unknown French Canadian film called Maria Chabdelaine uh, in French, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, you know, which is a film that did end up in the National Board of Review as one of the best ten pictures of the years of the year, you know, every year they take 10 pictures and they put them in a time vault. <laughs> and this film, Maria Chablin, is a beautiful film, gorgeous film, but nobody ever saw it. You know, I did a picture called Ticket to Heaven, um, which was about the Moonies, which won me the Canadian Oscar. And I was, you know, being nominated for, for an Oscar and a Golden Globe. And the head of the Golden Globe wanted to nominate me. Uh, but unfortunately, the Canadians had waited too late and didn't fit the category and mm. it was disqualified by the Academy because it was no longer a foreign movie because it had been released by MGM. Anyway, the point is, um, you know, I, 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 the thing is this, you know, it's what Charlton Heston said to me. I worked with him on a picture called Motherload with Kim Bassinger. He said, you know, Nick, the trouble with the film business is that mm. it's a business that's an art. And an art, that's a business. And that's true. <laughs> and he should know because he worked with Orson Welles, one of the true greats. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm rattling. No, it's, it's fascinating to hear. And, uh, you know, uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how you, because you were already interested in a lot of these uh, kind of esoteric things with Tesla and so forth where you got to Hollywood. But when, out of all the people you knew, and you, you've, you've, know, you've known so many people, worked with so many people, which are the, just from my own curious point of view, which, what are some of the actors that you felt comfortable enough with to discuss these kinds of extreme no, Not really. Topics? I mean, no, no. You don't have time to discuss anything when you're on so set. So none of them. Yeah. You're, I mean, that you working, became friends with or anything? You're, yeah, I became friends with people like John Savage. You know, he's a wonderful man, a wonderful actor. And, of course, yes, he did yeah. some of the great great American classics. He did Deer Hunter, you know, with Robert De Niro, Chris Walken. He did Thin Red Line. He did El Salvador. He did a wonderful performance. Uh, he should have really won an Oscar for. And the blank, I blank on it where he played that police officer, you know, from the 60s guy in New York, in L.A. The hell was it called? Anyway, he's done tons and tons of films. He's a marvelous, marvelous actor. But, you know, I certainly connected with him. But in terms of having uh, these kinds of, uh, you might say, philosophic discussions. No, it doesn't happen. You know, acting is action, basically. You know, and I was, a, you know, an action actor in many ways. You know, I in Stingray, I did, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I did, I, I studied Aikido, you know, and, and uh, you know, I did a lot of jumping and running and hanging from buildings and all that kind of stuff, which is fun, you know, and riding horses and all that, and fighting with swords. You know, I did a film in Czechoslovakia, you know, a mid, uh, from the middle ages i was in full armor you know uh, on a horse with a with a 30 pound sword and and uh, you know a lance you know and learned how to fight uh, from uh, a school in prague that had been teaching knights going back to the 15th century on how to and actually used it and almost killed myself in the process because those things are heavy man and uh Anyway, so, you know, as an actor, I have gotten the opportunity to explore the human condition and also multi, many cultures. So I'm not locked within uh, one narrow, you know, as Hamlet said, I could lock myself within a nutshell and call myself king of infinite space. 
And then he adds, were it not that I have bad dreams. The problem is this, is we lock ourselves within the nutshells of our own perception. The actor's responsibility and duty and obligation, because he has one, is to open the eyes of the audience in the same way and the mind of the audience and the hearts of the audience and the guts of the audience to other ways of being. And as Aristotle said, thereby uh, bring about compassion and tolerance towards your fellow man. And the elimination, the purgation of terror, i.e. take all the fear out and throw it into space. And in that particular process of creating compassion, elimination of terror, then you have what is called, quote, entertainment. That is to say, mm -hmm. you're elevated. Your spirit is elevated. You walk out feeling better, you know? Mm -hmm. And you, you go to a show like The Producers or, you know, these great shows that, you know, have come out of the American womb because america has produced some of the most extraordinary artists in the last hundred years but you walk out of those you know you walk out of a marx brother movie my god you know so mm. fabulous the three stooges you oh, know mel brooks the three stooges, yeah. you know the, the mel brooks you know um you know the producers you know and and you know you could be in a terrible state of mind and and see one of these artists and they liberate you they, they give you hope well that's yeah. part of the purpose right that's the whole idea right well, it is, but in like America, and America's listen has done a great job at that, man. A great job. Listen, I'm a, I'm sorry. I know McDonald's is a, is really bad for you, but it tastes great. Yeah. At one time, <laughs> at one time, it really was good for you. And I'll tell you something. Coca Cola once saved my life when I was in Moscow shooting a film. Yeah. Because yeah. I was diabetic, and the reason it yeah. saved my life is because I'd been put on these drugs that almost killed me. Uh, with the diabetes and my blood sugar drops rat and I was passing out and thank right. God I, a friend of mine gave me a bottle of coke which is filled mm -hmm. with sugar and uh, and and brought my blood sugar back but the problem is the very thing that is, saves you will also destroy you because what are they what is the nature of the sugar in that it's fructose right. and fructose will create diabetes Diabetes is now one in two in the American population. One in two people will get diabetes during their lifetime. Cancer, one in three. Autism, which used to be one in 2,000 and yeah. something, is now one in seven. Yeah. Something is wrong. Absolutely. You know, you want to make, make America great again. Yes, absolutely. But you must fix the health of the nation. Well, I was, America I was... is now number 48, 52 on the World, World Health Index. Oh, I was is, watching is, uh, an interview with Bobby Kennedy Jr. again the other day, and they said so many guy. things. Yeah, so many great things. Guy. It's impressive. Great guy. He's the only one that talks about this issue. He talks. He's about the only the, one. The, he's, yeah, the only, he, he's the only. He's the. He's the only yeah. one that's really aware of the fact that you cannot make a nation great unless the health of the nation is yeah. strong. He and says, America had at one time the greatest health. Why? Because it had the greatest food. American well, beef was and, the best. And he, and he America grain was the best. Sure, and everything. he mentions everything American like, was the best, right? And he mentions like when when I when I was a kid, I'm a little younger than you, but when I was a kid, uh, nobody, I mean, pe everybody ate peanut butter, and no, there was no such thing as peanut allergies. Now no, you go to no, there's a big no. peanut on every table in the school cafeteria. Of course, of I mean, course, an excellent source of yeah. of protein, an excellent source of fat. The problem is pesticides, herbicides. Roundup, uh, endless amounts of, of what the French call connerie, mischievous tampering with, such as yeah, let's use uh, radiation 
uh, to keep meat, uh, you know, uh, you know, on your shelf for ten years. Let's because let's find a way of increasing the profit, and the only way you're going to do that is by deadening things. So yeah, this stuff, hey, yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, we've got tons of stuff, but the trouble is, if you eat it, first of all, nutritionally, you know, they've done experiments where a carrot eaten today from a carrot from 50 years ago, 40 years ago, can have yeah. as much as a thousand percent difference in mineral and vitamin content. That means wow. you would have to eat a thousand of these carrots at two dollars or whatever they cost now, which is absurd in America that vegetables are so expensive. But you would have to eat a thousand of those to get what you used to get from one carrot or one egg. Yeah. yeah. So, so the strength of America, right? Make America great again. Well, make them strong. Not just a few rarefied individuals who are super athletes because they have access to every single food and every single right. supplement and all that kind of stuff. But the population of America, the middle class, yes. the, the working people, you know, make them strong from the ground up yeah. and and here as i said is again the viper the serpent has been drugs and alcohol and not just drug drugs i.e street drugs but prescription drugs america yes, consumes absolutely. more prescription drugs than any place on earth it's america fine. represents you know less than six percent of the population of the world consumes 80 percent of the world's painkillers to yeah. say nothing of, of the antidepressives, the antipsychotics, the anti-anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. This is insane, kids. How can you yes. possibly live this? So it really is becoming uh, Hunger Games. It really is becoming Metropolis, you know, where people, in a sense, are becoming hybrid robots, uh, the zombies that have been on television now for years, because television is predictive, you know. Yes. Art is predictive, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Artists are the antennae of society. They tell you what's going to happen. Well, you know, this is happening. People are being zombified for real. And then Karen, Karen this, Carpenter had the same question I had. She said she was wondering the same thing. Who is awake in the film industry? So she's looking for somebody else oh, like you. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's put it this way. Um, uh, if you are awake, you'll be put to sleep. If you continue <laughs> to stay awake, you will be ostracized. Uh, if you continue to stay awake, you will be exiled. And if you continue to stay awake, you will be killed because that is the process. That is the natural movement of things. Socrates, you know, who is one of my <laughs> heroes, I did a play on Socrates. I actually wrote a play called The Death of Socrates and Other Monologues, right? Now, Socrates, for the people out there who don't know who he was, was really the, the founder of, in many ways, Western civilization as we know it. At the feet of Socrates, a bricklayer, a guy that, a stone, simple stonemason, is laid really the entire foundation of the ideals uh, of democracy, freedom of thought, freedom of inquiry, um, the ability to uh, equals among equals uh, within a society that uh, America has been striving to create from its inception. And Socrates was the guy that really kind of started this dance, and it's an extraordinary story because for those who don't know how Socrates became Socrates, was that um, um, what happened in Greece at that period of time, Athens had been taken over by a military junta, uh, very much like, you know, communism had taken over it and so forth. And 
it was finally thrown out and, and democracy was restored. One of the guys that was, uh, you know, escaped uh, the, the junta returned and he was a mischievous Greek. And uh, he decided, and this is true, this is not made up stuff. This actually happened. <laughs> he, uh, on, a, on a kind of uh, just a whim, decided to go to the Oracle at Delphi. Now, the Oracle at Delphi at that time was a cross between the Rand Corporation and the Vatican. It was a very holy, sacred place and very serious. When the Greeks wanted to find out whether they should go to war or not with Iraq, Iran, uh, you know, Afghanistan and so forth, before they would commit an action like that, they would go to the Oracle and they would ask the Oracle. And the Oracle was a Pythian priestess. And these women that would go into trances and the god Apollo would speak through them. And these priests would take down notes and stuff and say, well, what did he say? You know, so, and, but the thing is, you know, so in fact, there's a famous story about the Athenians going and saying, you know, should we go to war against Corinth? And, you know, the goddess thing and out of her mouth came, a war will be won. And they thought, we're going to win. No, what she said was a war would be won. Didn't say it was going to be you. <laughs> and, uh, but you could go there and you could, and it was serious. It was very serious. You know, you could go there and you could say, listen, I got a headache. You know, uh, what should I do about it? Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. And uh, sorry, I didn't. And yeah. uh, I'm sorry, I'm rattling, I know. But anyway. And, no, well, and, well, there's a, there's another question that somebody has for you. This White Wolf was, says, uh, has yeah. the actor, ever, have you ever encountered the pedophile culture in Hollywood? No. No, okay. I never, I never did, but I did meet, uh, what's his name? Uh, Corey, Corey, Corey Feldman. Feldman. Yeah. Feldman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he was friends with a friend of mine who did tell me that apparently, uh, they had been abused or that the abuse was going on. I, I only really found out, I never had direct contact with any of that stuff at all. But then you see, I was not, uh, in the upper echelons, you know, I was, I was, I was a working actor, upper middle class. And you class didn't come actor, as you know. a kid. I mean, most of these people like Corey Feldman, they're talking about it from experience. They experienced it. Right, exactly. You know yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, there, but there is no doubt in my mind that certainly that is going on, and it's a worldwide phenomenon. No question about it. Worldwide phenomenon. And here in Europe and France, Belgium and so forth, and England, this is a, this is a serious, serious problem. And as are, in fact, the satanic cults, that do operate and they are real. And that has been around by the way, since the time of Carthage, yeah. you know, the Carthaginians, the ancient Carthaginians sacrificed quote virgins, i.e. young children um, uh, on the altar to the God Moloch and so forth. And this kind of shit's been going on for a long time. It's gone deep underground Absolutely. now because it used to be out in the open. Yeah, the hellfire People, club with Ben Franklin. <laughs> Well, possibly, yes. But I yeah. just want to finish the story of Socrates because just yeah, I have to tell the story. So anyway, so what happened was he goes to the oracle and says, hey, who's the wisest man in all of Greece? Buddy. And the oracle said, Socrates, the stonemason. He's like, well, what, the, what the hell's going on here? He knows Socrates. He goes to him, who's, you know, hammering, mid-hammering, and says, you're not going to believe this, but the oracle just told me you're the wisest man in all of Greece. And Socrates was shocked and said, are you kidding? says, I don't know anything. Is, is, is God lying? Is the oracle lying? So he says, in the Apologia, he says, I decided to prove the oracle was wrong, so I, I went around and 
asked, started asking questions. I went to the wisest man in Athens. And he says to the audience, because he was actually on trial for his life, which is what the apologia for having done what he did. And he says to the audience, you know, you all know who he is. It was probably Pericles. Went to the Agora, who would have been like, you know, would have been the equivalent of a cross between, you know, the president of the United States and, you know, uh, you know, a professor or whatever. And he said, I, I went and I listened to him. And after a while, after listening to him, I, I realized that, other, that he, other people thought he was very wise and he himself even wiser. In truth, he wasn't. So I walked away shaking my head, thinking to myself, I dare say none of us knows much of anything, but he thinks he knows. And I neither know nor think that I know. That was the beginning of Socratic inquiry. He then dedicated his life traveling around, asking people what they did and how they did it. And that became the foundation and then of, of, of democracy, the, the, of, of, of free thinking, of, 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 of scientific thought, of all that. And he got followed around by these students, one of whom was Plato, who recorded it all. Until finally Socrates was right up on charges for heresy against the goddess Athena and the corruption of the youth. Serious charges punishable by death. In front of 500 Athenians, he defended himself. It's called the Apologia, and uh, and and he was uh, and, and he was and he was and, and he was declared guilty. At that point, he had three choices: he could go into exile, he could pay a fine, or he could accept death. He rejected exile. He said, "If you Athens, the, the most uh, enlightened people in Europe, refuse to listen to me, who else would?" He says, as far as money goes, I don't have two cents because he had dedicated himself only to inquiry and to the pursuit of understanding the human condition. Now, his students gathered the equivalent of $250,000. I think the fine was maybe 100000 More than enough to pay the fine. The Athenians rejected it. They were so pissed off with this man, and he accepted death. And his response to that was, I, he said, so you declared that I should die. So be it. He said, Athens gave me life. Athens has now declared to give me death. So be it. He said, and furthermore, I have no idea what death is. Perhaps it's the most wonderful thing that could ever happen to me. He said, he said I have no fear of death, but I have a fear of doing wrong. Hmm. We now live in a time where people have nothing but a fear of death, but right. have no qualm right. about doing wrong. Now, no. <laughs> that is the foundation of so-called Western philosophy, and therefore, and the foundation of what then became and went into the Constitution, where it's stated, people hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that liberty is freedom of speech, freedom of thought, the ability to inquire, to ask, to be able to say to someone, oh, well, now you tell me that uh, this particular, uh, I should take this particular substance and put it into my body. And you've, you can tell me that uh, this particular substance that you asked me to put into my body is, uh, is perfectly fine. Can you tell me exactly what the nature of this substance is and how it operates? 
Oh, I see. And uh, so you're telling me there are um, biological weapons of mass destruction uh, in this particular country, and you have absolute proof of that. I see. Can I see the proof? Can we examine the proof? What is the nature of this? But none of this inquiry, this obvious questioning exists anymore. Now, getting back to Hollywood. In Hollywood, we cre create movies. And what do movies do? Well, they, you know, they entertain us. They take us to other worlds. They inform us. They make us feel and experience things that we would not normally feel or experience. That is its purpose. But it can be also used to hypnotize people. It can also be used to brainwash people. And it can also be used and has been used to set up a particular mode of thinking exactly tailored to, shall we say, certain vested interests, period. Vested interests, i.e. profit. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the profit. Now, if it's only going to be about the profit, well, you know what? Uh, you're going to have problems. There was a Chinese emperor, a very wise man, which is why they practice Tai Chi in China, uh, and do physical exercise in the morning, which everybody should be doing um, for the health of the body and the mind, men's, uh, you know, sans men's and corporate assessed or whatever it was in Latin. But this particular emperor was a very wise man. So he passed a law that every doctor in China would have to be paid a few cents a day. But the moment you got sick, you stopped paying them. Yeah, I've heard that. That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> you take the profit motive out of it. Because if you don't, then there's no money in health. There's only money in sickness. There's no money in sanity. There's only money in insanity. There's no money in peace. There is money in war in the pockets of few individuals. So is it for the common good? No. So. Those Greeks, and then we'll go back to Hollywood, you know, had two central questions, which are questions that are absolutely relevant to our time. What is the nature of the good? In other words, what is ethical? What is correct behavior? Mm -hmm. And what is the nature of the real? What is the nature of the real? Is this real? Is this really happening? You know, so, you know, I don't want to go into recent history all that much because we know exactly what happened if for him that hath ears and eyes to see and we know what happened we know what's going on but if i'm drugged out if i'm drugged out i can't think if i'm i'm drinking myself into oblivion i i can't how can i exist so if you look at consumption of alcohol and drugs and like this fentanyl uh, you know horror and um all the stuff that's been going on this has to be addressed and i think robert kennedy jr is yeah. right on the button and the only yeah. one that I've seen who's awake. Oh, he's, he's so he's like, if you saw it of all people, he had a great interview with uh, Howie Mandel and his daughter recently. I saw that interview. It was a great interview. Yeah. It was, I mean, he, and I know it. Howie and I, I thought, I thought, Howie, you're such an asshole. Yeah. He's but, just, you know, yeah, it's a like, typical, you're such an asshole, Howie. A go, man. Keep doing it. Let's keep, you know, and he defended himself brilliantly. You yeah, know, oh, with, he was, he, with, 
without without uh, putting him down, you know, without offending him or offending his daughter or anything you know, like so, that. He has such knowledge, and this he is the kind of guy. Again, he's not perfect. I, mean, I get because the problem yeah, nobody, is nobody perfect. I mean, the in reality. my world, in my world, yeah. if I say something good about Tucker Carlson or Elon Musk or Robert F. Kennedy Jr., yeah. they don't trust anybody. So they don't think anybody's legitimate. They're all, and, and okay, it could be true, but RFK Jr. All I'm saying is what. He, and yes, I'm aware of his stance on Israel. I don't understand that. I obviously somebody told him to say, but I, I don't like it. But everything else he says is so far uh, head and shoulders above the other candidates. He's so much more qualified. He's brilliant. He he knows all the stats and the figures, and he's talking about things about the chronic illnesses in children and adults that are important. America's not only you know dumbed down, but they're physically sick. I mean, it's, it's much easier to control. Children are having heart attacks now, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, you know, children are having heart attacks. It's just uncanny. You know, cancer rates are skyrocketing, and that is a fact. You know, heart attacks are skyrocketing. Everything is going exponential. You know, America spends more money on drugs than any other country in the world, and has the yeah. worst health on the planet it is yeah. now i think number 48 on the health index yeah 48 or 52 actually canada used to be 12 it's now no, number 28 20 30 something like that yeah. and uh all you have to do is like open your eyes and look at the facts look at the information follow the science but <laughs> follow the science means actually open your eyes in order for something to be scientific, if you're going to follow it, it has to have validity, reliability, and repeatability. And you have to, it has to be valid. You have to know how it works. They don't know how, you know, it's like, oh, take this, take that. Oh, really? Show me. Show me the, you know, show me the money. Show me exactly how this works. Because you're going to put something into my body that I have no idea what it's going to do. Nor do you. Mm -hmm. Nor do you. You have no idea. And and you say, well, listen, uh, doctor, I got a headache. I got a headache. Well, take this drug. Fine. Okay. Don't just give him the drug. Find out what's giving him the headache. What is right. the cause of it? What is the nature of it? That's, that's what uh, naturopathic doctors, that's what healers have done for centuries. That yeah. all went out the window in the last 50, 60 years. All of a sudden, it's, you know, the doctors are no longer doctors. They're drug technicians. Yep. And, and, and it's, you know, and now AI is coming in, excuse me. Uh, all right. Okay. Let's go for it, man. Let's, let's do hunger games. I, I'm ready for metropolis. I'm ready. Put on my robot suit. Yeah. Alter my DNA and I'm yeah. ready to go, man. Let's go out to the next level. You know, it's yeah. interesting because without, you know, being, because it is quite difficult is that uh, one of the field, uh, one of the people that I did follow for many years, because I followed and I studied different people, was R Rudolf Steiner, who was the founder of Theosophy, mm -hmm. of uh, Anthroposophy. Uh, anthroposophy was a was a philosophical movement, but it was more than a philosophical movement. It also had impacts and implications in farming and education. Many schools were founded, uh, and medicine, definitely medicine, mm -hmm. and. Um, and he said, basically, he was a mystic of sorts, like kind of, you know, um, up there with um, you know, the American um, sleeping prophet, Edgar Cayce kind, yes. of, yeah. kind of reality. Uh, and, uh, and Steiner said that there had been these incarnations throughout history as we evolve. Uh, the devil apparently had incarnated in human form 5,000 years ago in China. 
and uh, Christ was then incarnated, you know, the, the teacher, the one. And uh, in our generation, uh, this demon by the name of Ariman, who was an ancient Persian demon, and he was the demon of technology and science, and he would be incarnated in our time, and that we would have to confront him. We would actually have to confront this. In other words, we have to open our eyes, we have to look into it, and we have to face it. And we have to pray for the courage to be able to face it, because it's going to take courage. So, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, you're so well read. You're so well read. You know all these things. You must. You must be familiar. One of the guys I was fascinated by as a young man was uh, was Wilhelm Reich. What do you think of him? Oh yeah, he was terrific. Absolutely terrific. I, I studied him. Orgon, um, orgon accumulator. <laughs> the orgon accumulator, for which of course he spent. Uh, he was thrown into jail and yes. died in jail. And he predicted. Reich actually was an extraordinary individual because he being a student of Freud, and he was a brilliant scientist. Yes, yes he was. Um, yeah, I, I, analyzing the dreams of his patients in Germany in the 1920s, he deduced that something powerfully terrible was going to happen in Germany. This is where the Nazis were just starting up. And based upon the examination of these dreams, he said, I better get out of here. And he split and he went to the United States. He predicted that he would end up his day, that he, he would end up in, in the, the, his days in jail, and uh, which he did. And uh, he wrote a, a brilliant uh, piece that I wanted to adapt uh, into a, a, th a theater production. Uh, as I, I did with the Apologia, I actually applied, I, I adapted the Apology of Socrates. I put it on in a theater in Toronto, the Artwood Theater, for three weeks where I played Socrates uh, as an old hippie and did that speech or re redid it into modern speech. But in Listen, Little Man by Wilhelm Reich, he mm -hmm. confronts Ariman. He confronts all this stuff and looks into it, looks it in the eye and says, hey, buddy, I know what you're doing. Yeah. The mass psychology of fascism. Yeah. I see what you're doing. Well, okay, let's talk about fascism, okay? And you say, well, you know, we're not fascist. Oh, yeah, really? No, no kidding. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote a play, because uh, I'm also a playwright, and two of my plays are being done right now, actually, here in Europe. Um, and uh, uh, I wrote a play called Hotel Praha about the fall of communism. And in the play, the character that I played, who was this kind of crazy guy in a hotel room, and it's all a monologue and all that, predicts basically you know, that in the fall, in the fall of communism, basically that it would fly across the ocean and land on American soil. And that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing basically that the corpo-fascist technocracy that has taken over this planet has become the new, the new Nazis, the true Nazis, which are complete control freaks. And the issue is control. And that's what, unfortunately, I think AI is really going to uh, yeah. well, let's, uh, let's enable. Ta let's talk about enable. AI because, because you, you come from a, an industry where, I mean, how many movies have we seen where uh, you know, artificial robots or, you know, or computers? Well, listen, or years, ago, years ago, I was shooting a movie of the week. I was up in Sacramento. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, I was working at, I, I was doing this, uh, The Simpsons, what was her name? The actress that did uh, The Simpsons. Uh, uh, the, uh, 
uh, anyway, with her, oh, yeah, I, was yeah, yeah. I was working with her, and anyway, we're shooting a thing. And uh, there was an actor there who was playing a small part, and he was a teacher. He was a, uh, and uh, he taught acting, and we were talking about acting and all that stuff. And he was actually hired by uh, the George Lucas uh, company because he was working with all these computer guys who were starting to build uh, 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 a hybrid, uh, electri- you know, uh, ro- uh, uh, movie star, you know. Uh, using and that's where we've gone. We can now make movie stars, you know, robotically, and that's really what's going on. You know, any voice, you know, they can take the voice. You take a sample of your voice, and they can make you say anything, and then taking faces and all that. So the entire industry basically now is all moving towards that direction, where living, breathing human actors may no longer be of any need uh of any kind and um and and it's so bizarre because it's like a supernova we've gone into the profession of the actor okay i mean it's been around since the beginning of time right and they've always been around it's always been a very small group and uh but in the last 60 years more actors exist now than in the entire combined history of the world everybody's an actor Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, Marshall McLuhan, a great yeah. and brilliant uh, thinker yes. Yes. and so forth, wrote Understanding Media, who predicted the cyber age, who predicted the Medium the is the message, yeah, sure. The medium is all that. In his first book, um, The Mechanical Bride, said that the launching of Telestar, the very first satellite, had converted the planet Earth into a proscenium arch, thereby turning everybody into the planet into actors well guess what we all are we've all got our iphones and our androids and we're all filming ourselves on vacation we're filming our food and we're doing our podcasts and everybody is now performing you know in front of the eiffel tower they're all standing they're posing and in front of their cameras are all out they're filming their food and all that and it's going on the internet the entire worldwide thing we're all actors now so excuse me you know, so the actor is now been given the job not of pretending to be other people, as uh, as was written uh, as a wonderful uh, uh, miniseries I saw recently, Succession, where the the, the lead character played by Brian Cox says uh, has gone to the theater and he said, "How was the play?" And he says, "People pretending to be people," or you know, and I yeah, it's no longer that the actor actually has got to now pretend to be human. <laughs> well, reality, I think reality TV changed that. But Chris Graves says, uh, he has a question for you. Does Nick have any advice for younger actors like myself who are trying to break in the industry as character actors? Yes, run. <laughs> That's run away? <laughs> and, no, no, I'm serious. I'm deadly serious. You know, uh, Gurchev, who who uh, was one of the fellows that influenced me when I was young, Uspensky yeah. and those guys, the mystics and all that, said said the following about acting. He said, if you're an actor, quit. Stop immediately. All your intensity will gain you nothing. However, the highest aspiration of mankind, capital M, is to act with an A. Now, what the hell does that mean? It means this. Only if you absolutely have to do it, do you do it. It's a vocation. It's not a profession. It's a calling. It's, a, it's, it's not a profession. It's a calling. It always has been. Mm-hmm. Calling, vocation, voice. You're called to it. 
And most people today go into it because they want glamour and fame. And glamour and fame, as my the spirit of my father said to a friend of mine, is is a joke. Because money and fame will never make you happy. It'll bring nothing but misery. And and but oh yes, and if you're going to do it, you know, uh, then uh, you know, study martial arts, you know, which I did. In other words, defend yourself. Be you know, train the body, the mind, the voice, everything. And know that you're going to be knocked down so many times, you're not going to be able to stand it and just wait to get out again. It's a, don't you think it's a desire for recognition too? Because I know as a writer, well, uh, that's what I'm saying. We, 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 we live, we want to be. What do people think of it? You know, we're looking for recognition, and it's the same well, thing with actors. Course. What, what did you think? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Of course, we all want to be recognized per se as human beings, but the issue of of the you know the the imbalance, the inflammation. Of, of fame nowadays in American society where people are not people unless they are, quote, famous and rich. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is maintain your integrity. That's the issue. If you can maintain your integrity and do it, yeah, do it. But know there's going to be a lot of hard work, and that's all it is. And like Orpheus, rarely are you going to get, quote, satisfaction because in the story of Orpheus, and, you know, I always go to the Greeks because, of course, that's my culture. Um, my, you know, where I come from was was Magna Graecia, the ancient Greeks, and I was very influenced by that. But the, uh, in the story of Orpheus, there's a story. Orpheus brings art. He brings music. He brings, you know, the, uh, the, all this stuff, theater and all, to mankind, right? And he's married to Persephone, and Persephone is kidnapped by the god of death, and Orpheus goes crazy, and he goes to his uh, father, Zeus, and says, I want to see my wife, I want my wife back, and you know, talk to your brother, Mr. Death, and uh, to, you know, let me talk to him. So he goes down, and he talks to Death, and says, I want my wife back, and Death says to him, oh, she's just down the hallway there, why don't you go over there, play your music, your guitar, your banjo, your whatever, and turn around, and just start walking, and if she f- follows you, you can lead her right out of here, but you're not allowed to turn around and look at her. So he starts playing and he's just freaking out. Is she coming? Is she coming? Is she turns around? There she is. Boom. She disappears. Now, what is the meaning of that? It means that the artist, you're not going to get a crack at it. It's like what Brando said. You know, there's no actors left, only businessmen. And the, and the real actor, i.e., if you're going to be a real actor, you know, like an Orson Welles, you know, the genuine item, like a Sam Peckinpah. These guys were real guys. You know what I mean? The guys that really were in the thick of it. And you better get ready for war. Now, if you just want to sort of like, okay, go ahead and yeah, go for it, man. But you're called to it. If you're called to it, do it. That's the only advice I have. If you're called to it, do it. And if you can do anything else, do anything else. But if you can't do anything else, do that. If you've got the spirit inside of you, the fire, you know, and that fire is real, and it's been passed on from generation to generation, exactly like the Olympic torch. It's passed on, and you get the, I, you know, it was passed on to me by Rod Steiger when I saw him when I was ten years old, and I saw him do the pawnbroker, the uh, Patty Chayefsky, and it blew me away. I was ten years old, and I went, "What the hell did I just watch?" Did you ever get you to know? meet him when you get to Hollywood? I, I did actually near the end of his life. I hung out with him for about a week. Uh, on on a film festival uh, in the, in the Caribbean, and um, and I said, my God, you're the man who made me an actor because you passed something on to me. So if this a man asking this question feels that inside of his soul, his spirit, 
then do it, man. Do it. Absolutely go for it. You'll never get a better ride. <laughs> you'll never well, you'll never get well, a better the, ride. How, the entertainment is such a weird, uh, you know, and I, I alluded to this in On Borrowed Fame, the book I wrote about it, but uh, so many you people. You wrote about it brilliantly, brilliantly. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. It was wonderful talking to people like you, but it's, uh, you know, fame has such a short, uh, you know, shelf life that it's incredible. And so the, it's ironic Andy Warhol, who epitomizes kind of being famous for no reason at this point, but the only thing well, he's remembered- he, 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 he actually, you're absolutely right about Warhol. He was yeah. quite a brilliant soul, but he, he basically understood that uh, basically everything had become, uh, uh, you might say synthesized. Everything had become synthetic. It's like, if you pick a rose, the rose is a beautiful flower. There are many qualities to it. Besides the thorn, it's color. Now there's this perfume. And all that, it's all one thing. But what happens is you're going to take that perfume and you're going to synthesize it. Now you've got rose spray, right? Now you're spraying the perfume and that's it. But you don't have the rose anymore. In effect, what's happened is we've been, as Marx said, alienated, right? The worker is alienated from his product. But the reality is the consumer is totally alienated from himself. Yeah. Well, but he, he's, you know, he, he talked about everyone being famous for 15 minutes. And ironically, that's what we remember him for. But it's so true. And my book showed that so many of these people who were briefly there, I mean, people that I talked to, like my friend Susan Olson, who played Cindy Brady in the Brady Bunch, and we become buddies, and she's kind of in my world. But, you know, everybody loves the Brady Bunch. And she, but, you know, they don't really necessarily remember who, oh, who are those kids that, you know, they, so she was briefly on a big show. Lots of people like that, that uh, it, it, it's got to, especially if you're a child actor, well, He's, listen, uh, twas always thus, you know, twas <laughs> always thus. I mean, Shakespeare, you know, in, in uh, you know, in, um, uh, you know, in his famous Life's But a Walking Shadow, a poor player that yes. struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing of course yeah of course everything in life is transient it isn't just fame it's the whole nature of existence this is an, a transient experience we're all having we're spiritual beings having an earthly experience we're just passing through this dimension but it's a very important dimension you know so it's, uh, it's like what the buddha said about it he said, you know, that the opportunity that we get, he says, the, the, the tortoise of infinity swims the oceans of eternity for eternities upon eternities, decides to go to the top and as it, of the ocean. And as his head pokes through the water, a wreath of flowers is going by, his head pokes right through it. He says, that's what the odds are of being incarnated on this plane. The earth is an extraordinary experience. And, and, you know, the actor acts because he wants to manifest that, the joy, what Stanislavski referred to, the gladness. The painter paints to, to illustrate and show what the, the eyes can do and the, the musician creates music in order to, to manifest. You know, and, and the actor in many ways has to be a combination of all those variables and bring them all about. I mean, you know, you know I, I, I don't know what to say about it other than the fact that it's worth doing, you know, it's worth taking a well, crack as, at it. As, as an actor, um, how do you, I mean, I, I don't know, you have some people, especially if you're uh, like a Jim Carrey type, let's say, who plays so many crazy. I would, I would, yeah, he, he is, but, but I would imagine people like that have a hard time 
figuring out what exactly is my personality? Who am I? You know, outside of all these roles, do you get wrapped up? Like, I mean, you, you, you did the role of the, uh, the voice of the slasher in black Christmas, something like that. But I wonder like a Freddy Krueger type people like that that play those roles. How do you, I mean, does any of that spill over into your real life? Do you suddenly think, start thinking like the character or something? Actors act. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's what uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman. Um, you know, when Hoffman had stayed up all night running for Marathon Man to wipe himself up, make him exhausted because <laughs> he's going to be tortured by Olivier, yeah. you know, uh, you know, is it safe? Is it safe? You know, yeah. and he's all fucked up. And, and yeah. Olivier said, why don't you do what I do, dear boy? Act. <laughs> you know? yes, yes, yes. No, you're yeah. acting. You're acting. I mean, you know, I mean, but I do say, I say the only difference between me and a schizophrenic is I'm not schizophrenic. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline and hard work. That's all it is. It's just discipline and hard work and a modicum of talent. You've got to have that talent, but everybody can act. In fact, I'm writing a book on acting called Acting is for Everyone. I'm hoping to finish it this year. And, uh, and and basically anyone and everyone does act. The greatest actors are children, of course. You know, oh, I learned yeah, more from children sure. and, and yeah. animals. You know, they do it spontaneously Those and naturally. Natural, right? Yeah, of course. Yep. You know, it's no big deal. It's not like, oh, you know, it's like some, as they used to say, it's not rocket science. No, of course not. It's not rocket science. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an impulse. And it's a natural impulse that I think all mammals and maybe all all living creatures have it has something to it's and it is as, as brando pointed out a survival mechanism when he was being interviewed by connie chung or whatever you know he said well what do you mean i'm the greatest actor he said what are you talking about everybody acts mm -hmm. he says you know yeah I mean, they, they do all the acting the guy has to sell something or another and he's thing he's acting and so well, i'm just you know i'm not you know and all that stuff it is true everyone does act it's just that the actor for some reason, like a musician or, you know, has a, you might say, an inclination towards it, a calling towards it for some reason. I have friends that are really brilliant, uh, you know, musicians, rock stars and stuff like that, <clears throat> you know, and, and I'd say, well, you know, how did you start? I just started doing it. You know, it's like, yeah, them, some of them studied, but, uh, you know, John Lennon never studied. Yeah. Uh, Paul McCartney oh. never studied. The Rolling Stones never studied. Jim Morrison, you know, studied film. Yeah. Um, you know, Bob Dylan, for crying out loud, just went around imitating Woody Guthrie. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you're born to it, right? So, right. so, the, so it's a calling. And the, the problem, Donald, the problem with it is the fact that in our society, it has been so over-exaggerated by, quote, mercantile interests, so completely, and, and, and because of the nature of the business itself, is able to generate a tremendous amount of money and has in the past a tremendous amount of money. If you think about the amount of money that, you know, entertainment has produced, and particularly now with the Internet, you know, fully 50% of all the billionaire slash trillionaires are media moguls. It's all about, you know, it's gotten totally out of control, out of whack. So, you know, you're, you're somebody, you're just somebody, you know, walking around going, what am I going to do with my life, man? If I become a lawyer, I'm going to end up, you know, doing these really stupid cases for the rest of my life or, 
or a dentist. I don't want to spend my life looking down people's, you know, right, right. Or, you know, you know sure. what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, think about the profession as opposed to. How about to, being a proctologist? Huh? Yeah, well, talk, talk about a career. What, what a grand idea. <laughs> if, if we had harmony, <laughs> and I was like, this is really turning into a lecture. But if we had harmony, right, for example, we would be, all of us really would be farmers, really. Farmers living with nature, watching the trees and the, and the fruit and the thing, and raising children and the animals and all that stuff, and 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 living fully in 360. We no longer live in 360. You know, we went from 360 to 180 to 90 to 30 to 20 to 10, and now to what? Three percent of an arc, one percent of an arc. We specialize in life. You can't specialize in life. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a doctor. Oh, okay. Well, doctor, how does it feel to be a doctor? I don't know. What does it feel like to be an engineer? Oh, I don't know. What does it feel like to be a, uh, I don't know what? You know, what are you? You define yourself according to your profession? That's nonsense. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, I played, uh, I played uh, Phidias, the fisherman, and whatever. It says Socrates to the actor. Oh, so what do you do to the actor? And he goes, oh, I'm an actor. I act. I said, oh, what do you do? He said, I emote. I, I express the human condition. And he said, why? Recently, I recently won Best Actor at the at the uh, theater in Thebes. So really, congratulations. Well, I, got, for, for, I just want to tell you, I got a comment from Stephanie Green. She says, I'm going to be inappropriate. I'm in love with this guy. So, Sam, so Sam, Sam's Bodie's tree said, uh, did you ever know Cliff Osmond? He was his acting teacher, and he worked with Raul Julia and Armand Asante. No, but I, I I did know Armand, uh, I, I, and I did meet Raul Julia once, but uh, no, I didn't. Who who was he? Was he in New York? One of the New York guys? See, I didn't go uh, through New York. I went. I didn't go through New York, so I missed all that. Unfortunately, yeah. I wish I had. Yeah, but, no, uh, he, but I, he, yeah, he's. I, I'm not sure. This guy Sam was. Uh, he was. He was in some plays in Vietnam or something. He was in some kind of acting. He's in the chat room all the time. I had no idea. Learned about oh, yeah. him here. Oh yeah. No, I went. I did. Uh, I was brought into the actor's studio by Martin Landau after I did Ticket to Heaven, and I was nominated, and all that uh, frou frou was going around in Hollywood. I was going to be the, the next big whatever it was. Uh, Martin Landau wanted me to play James Dean of all people ah. because he had he had been friends with James Dean, and uh, and he said you could do it, you could do it, and uh, and he said, but I want you to come to the actor's studio for a year, so because uh, I. I shied away from all that stuff so i went to the actor studio uh for about a year and you know and uh and uh you know it's okay it's fine fine you know it's like uh you know i'll spend an hour and a half pretending uh, to drink a glass of water okay let's do that for yeah. i don't think you have to practice at life but anyway no but i did the you know uh encounter some uh, you know uh I'm trying to think. I mean, when it comes to, to acting itself, um, uh, it's in the doing. That's all acting is doing, period. You want to learn how to act, get on stage. You want to learn how to act, start doing it. That's it. Do it. You know, sure. it's like the Nike commercial. Just do it. But I did study all of these these guys. And and uh, very. it's a very interesting profession, <laughs> to say the least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we're all fascinated by it. Obviously, that's why you know people. Well, exactly, and then one examines that issue. What is it about the fact that someone pretending to be someone else fascinates the mammal? Yeah, what is yeah. it about that? You know, and then I thought to myself, well, 
you know, animals, for example, if you go into the woods and you stare at an animal, you know, and it stares back at you for a long period of time, you or the animal is in danger. Because the only time animals actually stare at you is when they're going to eat you. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> or, so, but here we go into, into theaters and sit and stare at, <laughs> at a small little box, you know, with fixed intensity. The person being stared at, right, is confronting the stares. So the organic is just like, holy shit, you know, I'm being looked at. Oh, my God. I mean, that's the way I felt was like. I hated it. You know, it took me, it took me a long time. I mean, so-called stage fright is, is absolutely extant. I mean, I worked with Maggie Smith years ago. It was just a brilliant yeah. actress, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, we did Anthony and Cleopatra in, in Stratford. And, you know, and she would vomit before each performance because her nerves were so, you know, activated. Yeah. Yeah. All, all, all real actors, I think, experience that, you know, and they, but they learn to cover it up, you know, or they use the energy of the anxiety that is provoked. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a natural way to behave, really, you know. I mean, the church in some ways was right to ban actors, you know, yeah. and, and to say, you know what, you're not going to do that, not here. It's not good for you and it's not good for anybody else. But the reality is, it is good, it does serve a purpose. Uh, but the problem, as I say, is it's been co-opted. That purpose has been co-opted and corroded quite seriously by vested interests so that it's no longer, you know, in, in the Chinese theater, you are dedicating your performance to the ancestors and to the gods. You know, that's your way. You're not working for General Motors or, or you know, General Electric or whatever, you know, what I'm saying? but that's that's what we've right. become. So well, Chris, Chris Gray is a... Yeah. Chris Graves, he was, he, he yeah, <laughs> I, uh, Chris Graves is in the chat room. He's, he's one of my, he and Peter Sikash, who I saw earlier as well. They are my primary researchers. They help me out so much now. It's amazing how much oh, they, yeah. they make Wonderful my job work. a lot easier when I'm ready. But, 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 uh, it says, Chris says, well, will Nick ever consider doing the narration for any future Don Jeffries, Peter Sikash, Chris Gray's books. And I was thinking your your voice is incredible. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking for work, man. I'm I'm an unemployed actor. All right, well, know, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have my publisher of uh uh masking the truth because so many people have said about about a uh, an audio book of that, but I'll I'll have to get with him and uh that would, and see that if would be great. Oh, I, that would your, be great. You know, I, can, I've done I've narrated books, I've done that. I love doing it because you can get to play different voices and stuff like that. And yeah. And uh, th that would be fun. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'd, I'd be honored. But, uh, uh, but you, uh, yeah, because you can tell when you're talking, you you instantly kind of go into dialect. You did it. You did Thomas Edison. It sounded convincing to me. I don't know what the hell Thomas Edison sounded like, but it sounded like it to me. I don't, I, I don't, I don't either. <laughs> I well, yeah, you, you kind of adopted what you think in your head of like a, hey, yeah, look a at industrial face. age American voice, you know? <laughs> yeah, you just kind of look at his face and you kind of get an idea. You know, I mean, guys like Jim Carrey do it so brilliantly, and then they can actually yeah. manipulate their face into extraordinary contortions. I met Jim when he first arrived in Hollywood uh, at the comedy club, and mm -hmm. just he's a wonderful, wonderful spirit. And he did one of the great performances when he played this other genius, Andy Kaufman, you yes. know, Man in the Moon. What, that, a, yeah. what a performance, man. And of course, the great and only Robin Williams, who suffered such a horrible death, you know, after having yeah. been such an extraordinary being. 
yeah. you know, but he relapsed after 20 years, as did, uh, uh, you know, uh, another great actor uh, 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 who uh, played Truman Capote was his name. He uh, he died oh. as well from from the drugs and and the alcohol. And well, the well, it, Robin Williams was uh, uh, an incredible. I mean, he's he, people think of him as a comedian. I loved his dramatic roles, and I think no, no, he, he's a British, he, British he's incredible. Incredible. I, but, I met him because uh, he studied yoga from the same fellow I studied yoga when he while he was doing Mark and Mindy. And he was uh, a sad figure. He just had a sad. There was something really with, melancholy with, about with, him. With within every great comedian is a terrifying tragedian and within every great tragedian is a comic that's the way it works it's yin and yang it's opposites so the greater the greater the the comedic talent the the, the deeper the the you know uh, whatever it is that they have i mean one of the most serious men i ever met in my life besides my professor of existentialism and phenomenology in university was woody allen when I met Woody Allen, uh, you know, I met this unbelievably serious man. You know, I went, oh, wow, Woody Allen. I was going to laugh. Ah, Woody <laughs> Allen, you know. And I met my professor of phenomena. Good good evening. Oh, good evening. Yeah. <laughs> so nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you as well. <laughs> well, he says Steve, what Steve Martin in, in his private life is very unfunny. Like, he doesn't want to ever very. be funny. He's, you know, no, do you, do you no. know him or? That's what I've no. heard. I saw him in a drugstore with Jonathan Winters. I used to go to a, this drugstore. <laughs> what a combination. Wow, meeting Steve Martin. In Montecito, there used to be this little restaurant and uh, I, where I lived in Montecito for a number of years. And uh, it was like a little kind of pharma, you know, a little drugstore restaurant. And there was uh, Steve Martin looking at a menu. And Jonathan Winters was there who lived up there. He was one of the funniest men on earth. He inspired yeah. Robin Williams. And suddenly Jonathan Winters starts pointing to, to Steve Martin going, yeah, Steve Martin, Steve Martin. <laughs> and Steve Martin is like hiding under his menu. <laughs> but Jonathan Winters would lose his marbles every now and then and go in direct yes. traffic. You know, yeah. and stuff like that. They put him in the nut. Now, that kind of genius, you know, is really difficult to. Oh, I don't know. Philip like Philip Seymour Hoffman is a guy you were thinking of to play Capote. Oh, oh, so the yeah. chat room was now, yeah, yeah. Great, great actor. You know, and um, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, there is. It's a tricky road, my friend. As you know, it's a little bit like climbing a mountain. The higher up the mountain you go, the trickier and the slipperier it gets. Yeah, uh, and more rarefied the atmosphere. You better. You know, very few ever really stay up there. And uh, as Sue Menger, is, who used to be my agent many many years ago, used to say, "It's not getting to the top. It's staying at the top." Of course, you can't stay on the top. You know, it's it's a cycle, and you know, and life's but a walking shadow. You know, so you you. The point is, I think the issue really is central is. And I think American movies have been fantastic at doing this more than almost any other art form in America has created, which is the ability to make human beings feel that they are human beings, Yeah, you know, and, and, and I love that. And I still love that, you know, and I, and I, I, you know, my, my only regret really, if I have any regrets and, you know, I mean, I've had a very rich life is that I've never been in a movie that, you know, has won an Oscar and made money. And none of my pictures ever made any money. And I never, you know, 
won an Oscar and, you know, just to experience it because just to experience that moment, because I really, I'm, I'm a sap. I actually get moved by this stuff. Well, that's gotta be one of the yeah. fantasies for you as an actor is giving an acceptance speech. And I, we probably, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I won, I won the Canadian Oscar. That was interesting. And, uh, you know, but, uh, but just kind of like, because I basically, been doing all these little films and stuff like that but really not in you know where people there's something that kind of like works you know for the general population because it's a marvelous marvelous feeling to be able to say you know i have actually touched the lives hearts and minds yeah. Yeah. Of, of other human beings and have that connection that part is the good part that is the perfume of the rose you know the real one not the synthetic stuff you know what i'm saying and not all that bony sentimental bullshit either you know what i mean mm -hmm. and and certainly not any of the glamour you know you know the paris hilton all this you know what i'm saying i mean all that you know, fame and you know and over here over here i hate that all that stuff did, 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 did you know uh Sally Kirkland, she's uh, been on my show before. I've been I love Sally. I love Sally. She's I love great. Sally. She's kind of a little bit. She has a few toes in my world. I mean, she's open to it, but she's well, I love Sally. She's a, she's a very old friend of mine, and 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 actually, Sally, I've known some when I first arrived in Hollywood in in seventy six. Mm -hmm. We became friends, and she used to study yoga. I used to study yoga and stayed friends, and then years later, I actually I was producing a film. Uh, called Last Gamble, which unfortunately never got a release. With uh, Steve Bauer starred in it, and I, I was in it, and and Sally, uh, I brought Sally in to play the mother, and she was absolutely brilliant. And of course, she was also a member of the Actors Studio, and uh, she was a great actress, truly a great actress. Oh Isabel. yeah, she she talked about uh, she was. Uh, I think she was. Uh, she was uh, really good friends with Robert De Niro and and Al Pacino. I think they were both in her acting class at the Actors Studio. I think. Yeah, she knew everybody. Sally actually knew everybody. Sally well, I like hope they get her back on. She's she's had some health issues lately, and she I know, the phone number I know. phone number I had for her is disconnected. So I've been trying to contact her because I, she's fascinated to be. Uh, and she also the reason she's more receptive to the kind of stuff I talk about was because she had she was one of those who was vax injured. She had a very bad you know reaction to the COVID vax, and uh, so that's changed people, her perspective. A lot. A lot of people did. A lot of people still do. That's a reality. Yeah. That is a fact. That's just a fact. Just look it up. You'll see. You know, I mean, the cancer rates are going through the roof. Uh, you know, heart heart uh, diseases. Uh, just it, it's unbelievable. It's just uh, extraordinary. You know, and and Robert Kennedy Jr. is absolutely right on the button about all of it. Yep. You know, and he's the only one actually talking the talk. Who's not been co-opted completely and controlled completely by the trillions of dollars that are running the entire, the entire industry, you know? And uh, but but you know people are waking up, I think, to an extent, you know. And well, uh, at yes. some point, I think I, th I said at, th at some point I think that. Uh, because as you have this uh, these all encompassing uh, digital age we have with you know the, the social media and, and uh, obviously just the internet itself, at some point the I don't think you can keep up the facade for only so long in terms of if well, most people Lincoln, are being de Lincoln, denied. Lincoln said, it, Lincoln said it best: you can fool some of the people some of the time, you can fool some of the people all the time, you can't fool all the people all the time. Right, because they, they've yeah. been. Fooled 
lot of people for uh, a, a long, long time. time, but it's some point, time. yeah, because yeah, I mean, you we, we talked about the disparity of wealth, and disparity of wealth is worse than ever. I talk about the bottom, the invisible half of America, the bottom 50%, which makes less than $30,000 a year and has less than 1% of the wealth collectively. That's half of your country. Yeah, uh, collectively, I, I, collectively, 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 less than 1%. Yeah, are so have, you joking? Nothing. And that's half. How do you have no, a first I know, country? I know. No, like I know. The, it's like we treat it like the dirt, you know, in the house where you sweep it under the rug. People no, don't I see know. it. Like, and it's a... Uh, I, I don't know how you can, but you know, it's getting harder out, especially in, in your old robbing runs out in California where they're just ignoring it. I guess we have people in the tents and they're crapping on the streets and they're not even cleaning it up. I mean, this is, you know, it's unthinkable. I mean, when you were out not to say nothing of this invasion from the South and it is an invasion, you know, I mean, no question about it. No, no, yeah. the entire thing, the entire thing has to be really looked at quite. Yeah. And I think a mind like Robert, Kennedy Jr. is with the kind of mind that could actually make a difference, a real difference uh, in, in transforming. You know, it's all about the essential energy. It's all about the frequency of a place. And But the first thing that, you know, that is absolutely has to be addressed is drugs, both pharmaceutical and street drugs, all of it. Because it's altering, it's altering the body, it's altering the mind, it's yeah. altering the soul. Yeah. Well, especially in something like Hollywood, because most of us think, okay, these guys are leading the dream existence. You know, why would you? But it's so prevalent out there. It's like, what, what is the, what's the hurt there? What, what is, what's causing the pain that you have to anesthetize it? You have to, oh, I have to drink. I have to take drugs. I mean, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was a heroin addict, and this guy was a great character. No, but, 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 but it's yeah. across the board, uh, yeah. Don. Across the board, it ain't just Hollywood. It's America. You know, yeah. it's it's in the heart of America. It's a de it's a devastated heart of America. Something, you know, something has happened. I think part of it is maybe the fact that the expectation, the dreams, and the hopes of the individual, the average common yeah. man, mm -hmm. is, is, you know, it's really pretty simple. It's really limit. It's really pretty simple. All they want to have is a good life, you know, get married, you know, meet a woman or a man that they can connect to, have children, you know, yeah. uh, work, watch their children grow up. You know, they want life itself and that's all been that's all pulled out in a sense into you know, super fluorescent outer space etc or you're nothing you know tying, and whole, tying a couple of these yeah, things together gta yeah. philadelphian in the chat room says rfk jr was able to recover from heroin abuse that shows character that's true i mean he's he's uh, on the record is i mean that's you don't find that too often someone that uh you know they, I, I think speaks a lot for his character He's gone through the belly of the beast, as I have, 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 have and, and others. They've gone through the people. The only people who really understand, the people who understand, they've gone through the belly of the beast of addiction. And uh, whether it's alcoholism, like my my case, or, uh, or or drugs or whatever, any kind of addiction. You know, is, is, it's like the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the Buddha, first noble truth is life is suffering. Well, what does that mean? It means suffering is life. What is suffering? Well, it means change. And then he says, clearly, second noble truth, the cause of all suffering is desire, attachment, entanglement, addiction. And then he says, there, third noble truth, there is release from suffering. Fourth noble truth makes it real clear. Right thought, right action, right work. Well, let's go to right thought, shall we? Shall we talk about education? Shall we talk about 
you know, what is rewarded in education, education for the sake of education. If you were, a, uh, you know, a, a bookish fellow in school and you'd be taunted and say, oh, you know, but they, they, oh, you think you're so smart, blah, 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 all that kind right, of stuff. Yeah, right. And then you make you make the football there. The, he's the hero. He's the hero who gets the girl, all that in group, right. out group. You know, right. I'm black, I'm white, I'm green and so forth and so on. You know, total disintegration. But central concepts are not no longer, which were, by the way, part of America. America was one of the most educated countries on earth at one time. I mean, the, the founders, I mean, God, I mean, Jefferson kept, uh, kept the meditations of Marcus Aurelius yes. by his bedside. I'd like to know what book George Bush kept by his bedside or Ronald Reagan. Or yeah. any of these guys, you know, the meditate. Have you read that book? It is unbelievable. Uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm not. I kept, love Jefferson, I, but I can't. I can't get. I can't. He, I can't I haven't done that. He, he kept it by the bedside, man. You know, Franklin was a scientist. These guys were just brilliant men, and men of courage and all that. Well, you know, you know, it. It's the fatted calf syndrome. It's America became so powerful, so rich, so fat, right? What goes up has to come down. That's the nature of existence. You know, the issue is finding the middle path, right? Finding the correct logical, you know, not, you know, common sense. Well, what the hell does that mean, common sense? But, you know, I mean, it's basic stuff, kids, you know, and, and here's the thing. We have this is this, you know an alcoholic has, has what we refer to as a disease of perception, the inability to actually see what's there. Well, when an entire nation suffers from a disease of perception, having been brainwashed in many ways by television mm -hmm. and by by this 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 thing, well, and you've lost the basics like get up in the morning, work hard, sweat, you know, use your body, use your mind, you know appreciate when you lose all that stuff and then you have to go to higher and higher frequencies like drugs and all that to get a high and then more and more money i mean you, you know it's out of control so it's an ethical issue i think so by ethical i don't mean like you're, you're, you're like force somebody to you know to be uh, a quote morality i'm not talking about that i'm talking about balance the universe is works nature works everything works ethically it works in balance the only thing that's out of whack is mankind yeah. so we make, so we make movies to try to remedy that stuff you know i guess and write books and write poetry and you know dance and do the best we well, can you do, you do it all we only have about five minutes left so i want to give you time to any taste talk about anything else you want to talk about i don't want you to miss the chance whatever you want to talk about i never understood calculus I have to confess. <laughs> I never got to calculus. I, 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 I think it was algebra two, algebra part two trigonometry was as high as I got. I didn't get to calculus. Well, I got trigonometry. I've never gotten calculus. I can't figure it out. I've been trying to figure it out my whole life. I don't know how Newton did it. I can't figure it out, man. Um, yeah, you know, I'm just, uh, I want to say is just to the people out there is just, uh, you know, maintain hope. Keep hope alive, as they, you know, I've said and all that, and and know that you know there is a there is a higher power, there is God, there is there is a kind of consciousness in this universe. What uh, Buckminster Fuller referred to as omnidirectional, omniscient, ever regenerative, non-simultaneous, partially overlapping, 
and I add the word ever loving universe. <laughs> oh yeah. God, I'm such an idiot. Anyway, well, no, no, you're 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 a renaissance and people people are getting the sense of that I can see from the comments in the chat. I do paint. It is true. I do paint. You know, well, hey, uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And by the way, folks, folks, I'm selling my paintings. If you'd like to buy them, you go on artmajeur.com and I'll, I'll sell you a painting, okay, at a reasonable price. And uh, I sell my signatures and whatever else I can do at my advanced age. But uh, I, I like, I like to do, yes, I, I write poetry and I have published books on, on poetry and I still write, you know, I still write poetry, I write plays. Right. Um, two of my plays are apparently going to be done at the National Theater in Romania. They've translated them. One is a, on the life of Eleonora Duse, the great Italian actress, mentioned only once by Barbara Streisand in her Oscar acceptance speech. And another on, uh, uh, and the other is the adaptation of Socrates. And, and you know, it's interesting because I've written a play called Death of Socrates and Other Monologues. And it's about an actor, i.e. a TV actor, who goes back to Broadway, off-Broadway, to do real theater again. And he's having all these struggles and fights, loses marbles, and he goes on the street. And then I go see Birdman, and I did two readings of it, one in New York and L.A., and there it is, <laughs> my story. Except, you know, I didn't have... So, I look, I, the important thing is this. The important thing, the only thing, I think, really, is to try to just, you know, do 360 on stuff, you know? And and open the doors, open the windows, let the light in, let the air flow through, you know, a little bit. Well, you're living you know? in such a historic place. And I, I just want to get the, the audience to get a sense of, we talked about this before, but when you're yeah. in Paris, you can tell you're in a first world country. I can't, I'm living outside of Washington, D.C. I can't tell. I mean, the, their potholes are everywhere. Cynthia McKinney told me a few years ago, she drove across France and didn't hit a single pothole. Now, that's a difference. Uh, there's a big difference here because, you know, France went through the revolution like America. It was the bloodiest revolution in history. And uh, they learned their lesson about the, the nature of, you might say, responsibility and equality, one man to another human being. And I think that's in the fabric of this place, especially after Napoleon came in. They set up a system where basically, you know, uh, the, the main thing is this. You know, a society, by the way, treats its children and its artists. Mm -hmm. You know, and and uh, there are children everywhere. The children, you know, the families are still here and all that. And artists are respected here. And uh, I don't know. That's something pulled me here. And here I am. I'm alive. As you know, Donald, I almost died. I went through uh, mm -hmm. seven years of almost dying. I've been recovered. I am now back. And uh, I'm going to keep going forward into the great unknown. So thank you, Donald. Thank you for oh, inviting me. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's nice to talk about myself for, <laughs> for oh, an hour. It's, well, you're, you've, you've had such a fascinating life. And those of us yeah. that uh, that are sitting here, I mean, I'm a big movie buff. I, you know, I, I love old films. I love pre-code talkies. I, lo I lo you know, I, I know it, you know, like I know the old baseball statistics. And uh, it's, it's, you know, meeting people that have actually – Work there. I mean, you started opposite Raquel Welch. You know, you were, you were with uh, Andrew. Yeah, I worked with Raquel Welch. I worked with Sophia Lauren. I worked I with. I mean, geez. You know, Every I, man I, I, can I, sit here and just think, wow. I mean, Tim <laughs> I worked with Kim Bassinger. I worked with. Uh, and you Michelle got paid Fowler. to do it. Worked, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I got paid to go to bed with Raquel Welch. I worked with Catherine Deneuve. I worked with, uh, you know, 
and then I worked, of course, with Charlton Heston. And, you know, I, I've worked with uh, just about everybody in the business. I didn't work with De Niro, I didn't work with Pacino. Would have been great, you know, but then I certainly did not meet my hero, uh, which was, uh, I had two. One was uh, Marlon Brando, of course, and the other was John Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I met neither, but I did work with uh, with his actors. I worked with Ben Gazzara. I worked with... Uh, with uh, you know, with uh, with all of them except for Gina Rollins, and I worked with just about everybody in Hollywood. I went as as Glenn Larson said about me, the famous producer of Magnum and all that, wanted me to do a series. He said, "You're Hollywood's best kept secret," and that is true. I am, you know, I'm Hollywood's best kept secret. I got a chance and an opportunity <laughs> to experience are. it, experience you it all. Wonderful, you know, you're, you're wonderful, and we're just about at a time. But I just, you know, Nick Mancuso. I, I'm, I'm so honored to call you a friend and to know that you will come on my you, little podcast and talk. You're, you're a real, a true Renaissance man, and they don't make them like you anymore. Brilliant conversation. You thank elevated you, everyone's IQ by, you know, a couple of points just <laughs> listening to it. So <laughs> thanks so much, Nick. Well, we'll have to talk well, again soon. And uh, Well, I can say in, in, the, in the words of Mo, mm, yeah. and totally. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening to I protest. We'll talk to you next week, same time. Take care. God bless. Bye bye. Take care.